This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Friday, March 1st. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. On Wednesday, speaking in an open hearing before the House Oversight and Reform Committee, Michael Cohen testified against President Trump. Cohen loyally served as Trump's lawyer and fixer for a decade and was sentenced in December to three years in prison on charges of campaign finance violations and lying to Congress. He warned, people that follow Mr. Trump as I did blindly are going to suffer the same consequences that I'm suffering. Everybody's job at the Trump Organization is to protect Mr. Trump. Every day, most of us knew we were coming in and we were going to lie for him on something. And that became the norm. And that's exactly what's happening right now in in this country. And it's exactly what's happening here in government, sir. Adam Davidson joins me to discuss how Cohen outfoxed Republican committee members and what to expect in the weeks ahead from multiple investigations into Trump's personal finances, his campaign, and his businesses. The committee's Democratic chair, Elijah Cummings, described Cohen's testimony as not the end of the process, but the beginning. Adam, welcome back. Hey, Dorothy. Great to be here as always. So I I particularly wanted to get you at this moment because you and I have been talking on this program for two and a half plus years about President Trump's business dealings. Let's just start off by asking whether you were surprised by anything in this week's testimony. Um, I I don't know that I was surprised by anything other than Cohen's incredible poise and uh, I guess I can call it his performance. Um, I am one of many, many, many reporters who has tussled with Cohen back in his loyal to Trump days. And, you know, I think I would not be the first one to say he really came across as a not very smart not very in control of his emotions, thug. You know, I would call him fairly often. He'd shout me down. He'd he never gave me the real threats. He gave some other reporters. But it always struck me as not only crude, but also just really ineffective. Like he just didn't understand how to work a reporter. The And I don't know if it's now that he's claiming to be honest, he's he's changed, or if it's that he was very well coached. But I was very surprised by his poise, by his ability to stay on message. Well, and even more than that, it seemed to me it was such a masterful job of political jujitsu, basically, where he was exploiting the power of TV, which is, of course, Trump's favorite medium, and Trump-style phrases. So, you know, in his opening statement, calling Trump a racist, a con man, and a cheat, all, you know, very tweet-ready. Absolutely. And he was so good at essentially forcing the public to see the Republican congresspeople as him a year ago, as him pre-flip. Complicit. Complicit in Trump. And and by the way, I guess that was also surprising how incredibly weak to non-existent the GOP defense of Trump was. I think every Republican congressperson attacked Cohen as you know, not trustworthy, which fair enough, <laughs> seems reasonable. But they had zero defense of Trump himself. 
it, it's don't attack our guy, but it's not, hey, he was a great businessman who, sure, did he cut corners? Maybe. Or I don't even know what it is. I mean, I think there's a reason they don't have a defense. It's hard to defend. Well, and also the pathetic schoolyard taunt on that placard above Gosar's chair, liar, liar, pants on fire. And, of course, Mark Meadows, you know, who is still coming under fire for his outrageous use of Lynn Patton, one of the few African-Americans who actually works in the Trump administration. And of course, Lynn Patton was a, just a longtime assistant in the Trump organization. She was Eric and Don Jr.'s assistant. And the other thing is, I mean, Cohen's very presence is an indictment of the president. I mean, hanging over that is until very recently, this was the man. This was not, as some Congress people tried to suggest, one of dozens of lawyers who worked for Trump. This was the one lawyer Trump chose as his personal attorney when he became president. I know a lot of the lawyers who work for the Trump organization. Cohen was not really part of the legal operation. He was he was more of Trump's personal, I don't know, aide de camp, sometimes whipping boy. Um, but I, I wasn't crazy about those Democrats who tried to turn Cohen into a hero. Um, this man is not a hero. You know, until recently, he was never indicted for a crime. But very, very, very many of the people he worked with were indicted. And um, Cohen's redemption is a very narrow redemption. He is asking for uh, forgiveness and being honest, we think, about one aspect of his lifelong uh, career on the edges of, of legality. But he will get out of prison. And with this, I am on the side of some of those GOP Congress people. He will get out of prison in three years, a very rich man who will likely be made more rich. And and I don't think this is a man who's deserved, I don't know, a heroic uh, redemption story. But just in terms of the effectiveness of what he was doing, you know, he is a lawyer, even if he's now disbarred, and he came with corroborating evidence. The paper trail has been pretty thin uh, until now. And do you think that... You know, seeing the copies of those $35,000 checks that Trump wrote to Cohen from his personal bank account, reimbursing Stormy Daniels' hush money, that was put up for, for everyone in the world to see, along with other documents, by the way, that got less attention. You know, it's funny. For all of the ink that has <laughs> and, and all of the words and all of the TV coverage and all the activity focused on Trump, we have still some really basic questions like – how much money does he have? How much money was he making? Where was that money coming from? And that's because it's a closely held private company and the United States does not make those kinds of companies disclose their internal financials. And so even though Cohen just released very short, terse descriptions of his finances from 11, 12, and 13, 2011, 12, and 13, that was really helpful. And there was already some really potent information in there. And let me stop uh, you right there, just because I think it would be helpful to explain how Trump inflated, in some circumstances, his wealth, and then in other cases, deflated it. Well, so as a general rule, obviously, and Trump himself has not only admitted this, has proudly boasted that he's happy to proclaim his worth to be massive when it serves his marketing purposes and then when it serves his interest in paying less tax or whatever to say his properties are worth much, much less than he would publicly proclaim. Um, and I think we know that about him, although it's pretty striking that 2012 to 2013, according to the Cohen documents, Trump's wealth 
doubled because he just decided one year that his brand value was worth $4 billion. Um, and, uh, and, and Dorothy, I should tell you, I've also decided my brand value is worth $4 billion. Yes. That goes without saying. Yes. But, but for me, there, there's more specific stuff. There are lines in the uh, financial reports that Cohen released that show the liquid cash on hand that Trump is claiming. And remember, 2011, 12, and 13 is a pivotal period. This is when Trump is beginning to engage in business with a bunch of the characters who would become major parts of the um, collusion story. We see Trump going from a largely domestic operation that seems to be spending in the, you know, five to $50 million a year on investments to a very globally focused business that's spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And um, nothing that we know of tells us why he suddenly, why Trump suddenly had so much more money in 2011, 12, and 13. There's no major sale of assets. There's no major new investment. He's still cut off from banks for the most part. So, so Cohen really opened up a whole avenue. We now know that Trump, there was more money flowing through the organization than we already realized. And what we already realized was there was way more money than actually makes sense. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Assuming the administration doesn't block the release of the Mueller report, there's soon going to be blizzards of documents. We know that dozens of people from the Trump campaign and the White House have turned over, I think, more than a million pages to Mueller. You know, if you had to name sort of the three things that you would lo- most like to get your hands on as an investigative reporter, what might they be? I mean, as much richness about the financial picture, um, I would say we are looking through a glass darkly at Trump's finances. And I would really like to know for the last, say, 10 years, from 2009 through 2018, Trump reports over 500 limited liability companies. Is that all of his businesses or are there others that we don't know about? You know, Cohen famously created an anonymous shell company to give the hush um, payment to Karen McDougal and said that Alan Weisselberg, Trump's uh, chief financial officer, taught him how to create an anonymous LLC. So are there others? I'd want to know money coming in, money going out. And then I would want to know the source of that money. I mean, I, I can't say this any more explicitly. What we know of Trump's business makes no sense. And it's not just, oh, he makes up numbers and he's not really worth $10 billion. I mean, on a month-by-month, year-by-year basis, there is more money flowing into that company than makes sense. So there is some source of funding. There's some source of money that we don't know about. And they have never explained it. And um, and I want to know what that is. So you, you mentioned Alan Weisselberg. Cohen repeatedly implicated him, the CFO of the Trump Organization, in the Stormy Daniels 
cover-up and possible tax and insurance fraud at the Trump organization. And Cummings has said that the Oversight Committee is going to subpoena Weisselberg to testify. He's someone you've been long interested in. Could you tell us a little bit more about him and, you know, what he might be able to reveal above and beyond what Cohen was beginning to hint at? Yes. Weisselberg knows more about the Trump organization than anyone else, including Donald Trump. Weisselberg graduated with an accounting degree from Pace University in New York in 1970. He went to work for Fred Trump. When Donald Trump started his part of the business in 1973, a young Alan Weisselberg came over and became Trump's main money guy. He has remained in that position through today. There is nobody with that longevity at the Trump organization, and there's nobody who has been so central to every piece of Trump's financial activity. He is treated like a member of the family, the degree to which he is trusted. If I could, you know, if I had a truth serum and was given a choice, I would probably pick Alan Weisselberg over Donald Trump himself, over Ivanka, over Don Jr., over Eric. Alan Weisselberg knows everything. I will say that every reporter who covers Trump's finances has gotten used to hearing I don't know, but Alan would know. I don't know, but Alan would know from sources within the Trump organization. As far as I know, Weisselberg has never talked to a reporter. This is not a public figure. This is a secretive, shadowy figure who really holds the keys to the kingdom. And uh, I am so thrilled and relieved that it looks like we will hear what he has to say. What do you think the Democrats are – what do you know the Democrats are most interested in pursuing? There are now, I think, at least half a dozen committees that are already moving forward and we're going to be seeing a, a string of hearings in coming months with Weisselberg called among others and Trump family members for that matter. You know, From what I understand, there, there's differences of opinion within the Democratic Party. There's obviously a contingent that's basically saying we don't need to know anything else. Let's impeach him now. There are apparently powerful Democrats who even think, let's leave him alone. Let's not – the more we investigate him, the more we attack him, the more we're sort of defined in terms of him and that's actually going to hurt us in 2020. That will inflame his followers. But I would say as I understand it, at least from the people I talk to, the mainstream view is we have to look at him but we have to build the case to the American public. Ocasio-Cortez and others seemed really to be mindful of that. Let's use this Cohen thing to create the conditions to bring on Weisselberg and then let's use Weisselberg to create the conditions to get the tax returns. I'm of the opinion we are going to get a full accounting at some point. Um, I My gut sense is that will not reveal that the Trump organization was an above board company that always made money in a fair and and legitimate way. But there's there's a lot we still need to know. And what's your view, finally, uh, about one of the big questions of the day, which is what it would take Republicans for Republicans to begin to turn on Donald Trump? So like many people, I've been obsessed with this question. And and that's why I said earlier, it was striking that the Republicans really didn't have an affirmative defense. But I've talked to a bunch of political scientists about this. And and they're convinced that it takes two or three big Republicans to turn. That, That when you look at key moments where you shift from a partisan to bipartisan global view, Watergate or the view against the war in Iraq, things like that, there's 
a watershed moment where two or three leading Republicans sort of create partisan permission, and then you see the ongoing change. Now, I mean, the default case, and this is what everybody tells me every day, is nothing matters. No Republicans will ever turn on him. But, you know, I I think the overall picture we're going to get in the next few weeks is going to be pretty damning. But the picture we have now is pretty damning. So this is the one that's really, really hard to answer. And, And I would just say, yes, we need more information. But I think the thing we need clearest is to tell a simple story. And and Michael Cohen was telling that simple story. The simple story being Donald Trump is a con man who made his money by conning people out of their money and or working with other con men <laughs> to um, help them launder their money. And that is a clear and simple story. Um, I would say it's a very uh, – there's a lot of evidence to support that story. And more than more information, we need clarity on that. I think what Trump's greatest protection comes from that there's just so much noise, so much stuff happening that nobody can quite track it. So they just dismiss everything. And that's where you and other reporters come in. I hope so. (laughs) Thanks so much, Adam. (laughs) Thank you, Dorothy. Adam Davidson is a staff writer at The New Yorker. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review The Political Scene on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Alex Barron for newyorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.